Radio shows you love from the people you know. This is Sam Talks Technology. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome. It's Wednesday. Yes, thank you for joining us. It's Sam Talks Technology. Here we are on Marlow FM. And yes, I've got my guest with me today, Lopa Patel. Hello, Lopa. Good afternoon, Sam. How are you? I'm so looking forward to this conversation we're going to have. Um, Now, how do we describe you? A digital entrepreneur? Yes, that's my uh, day job. That's how I make my living. I am a digital entrepreneur, but I'm also um, a non-exec director. I'm a trustee and I run a think tank on equality and inclusion. And even Lopa takes Sundays off. (laughs) (laughs) Not at the moment. Not at the moment even. (laughs) Okay. Um, So let's start off with um, what you're doing today. So you're a non-exec on what? Let's start with that. Um, I My background is really technology, so I'm very keen on ensuring that our public services um, embrace digital uh, to add value to the public, to ourselves. Um, and so my first role um, is at the um, Intellectual Property Office, the UK IPO, yep. and that's really looking at um, patents, trademarks, designs, um, and intellectual property for UK businesses. And we'll come back to find out how you got into that. Mm. Um, Obviously, the other things you do, um, you've got two online businesses and you're also a trustee at the Science Museum. That's my favourite role as a trustee of the Science Museum because science and technology has kind of been my passion throughout my life. Um, And... So being a trustee of the Science Museum just gives me so many opportunities to enjoy um, science. So last week, obviously, probably must have been one of the fun days. Um, Tim, Sir, I'll give him his full title, Sir Tim Berners-Lee. Um, the web turned 13. He gave a, a speech at the Science Museum when you were there. Yes, I mean, I have to say that's one of my sort of key highlights in life. Um, it was a real, real pleasure. He had come into the Science Museum on the 12th of March, which is when he had first switched on the what we now know as the World Wide Web. Um, and at the time, he was working at CERN. And so the Science Museum has actually got his computer. Oh, what, the original Next? The original, original Next computer with the sticker which says on it, you know, please don't switch this machine off. It's a server, <laughs> otherwise the whole World Wide Web will come and go down. And so he, he had come to um, talk about the impact of the web and what he would like to... Uh, see happen going forward into the future Um, and and so he was talking a lot about for the web the contract that's being proposed by the World Wide Web Foundation. Yeah and and, um, I think he's scared isn't he about the future of the web he thinks it's it's under threat. Yes and what he's proposing through the foundation which is run by himself and his wife um, is that there is a contract um, between the public, so, you know, the users of the World Wide Web, but also that there's a contract for between governments and the public and a contract between organisations and the public in how his creation, if you like, is being used. Because, like most of us, he's very concerned about the misuse of data, for example, undermining political processes. He's concerned about um, hate crime. He's concerned about... Uh, grooming. He's concerned about all the things we're all concerned about. But, but the web is just a reflection of human mankind. I mean, we, 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 when he set up the web and he set it up, you know, let's say for altruistic reasons, um, of course there's bad agents, bad characters, bad humans, let's call it that, who 
have turned what is a good creation into the slightly darker edges. And it's just mm. a mirror to humanity, isn't it? Yeah, I, I don't... I think throughout my um, tech career, I've seen that a lot of those inventions were always, always created with adding some sort of um, human value, you know, human capital. So I think when he created it, it was with that vision of it being used for great purposes. And in my life, I, in fact, I wouldn't have a business if it wasn't for the World Wide Web. I wouldn't have a think tank. I wouldn't be... A, I, w I don't think I would have the voice that I have now. No, I think many of us wouldn't. Correct. And so it, there is great many good things uh, that the World Wide Web has given us. Uh, it's democratised, uh, you know, our voices, for example. It's given us access to things we wouldn't have. Obviously, there is a small proportion which is threatening to kind of overshadow um, the whole debate. But one mustn't forget all the good things. And in oh, fact, no. absolutely. I had a minute to go up to Tim to, to thank him. Right. Um, and I think I, I got the sense he was a little bit exasperated that people are thanking him <laughs> for creating the World Wide Web because people go up to him and say, well, you know, I wouldn't have met my future partner if it hadn't <laughs> been for the dating site running on World Wide Web and all that. So he's kind of, he, he must have been thanked so many millions of times that I think he's now more concerned about what we do um, because we can't put the genie back into the bottle. We have to work with the web that we've got yeah, and we've got to make it better and more um, true and honest and also um, fair because one of the things that he mentioned which I found quite interesting was that women are significantly underrepresented on the web um, and, and, you know, access. Uh, I think they... What he was saying is that the World Wide Web, 30 years on, reaches half the world's population. Yeah. And he wants to make sure it reaches uh, the, the other half that yet don't ha yet have access to it. But also that women, uh, as 50% of the world's population, also get equal um, access. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember his 2014 TED Talk where he talked about creating like a Magna Carta for the web. Mm. Uh, and he showed statistically the numbers. I think at the time he was saying in 2007, something like 14% of the web was online. Sorry, the world was online. Mm. Uh, and, it, it, you know, when he gave that 2014 TED Talk, he'd moved it to 30%. Yeah, it's 50 now, 50%. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And, mm. and so, you know, we are growing, but we seem to forget that 50% of the world isn't online, isn't connected, isn't using the web, isn't yes. part of the conversation. And as you say, correct, if you did that by a gender split, it's probably 80-20 even, you yes. know, of those that are online, 80% are probably male, mm. which mm. is sad. I, I think that's very sad. And it's great that, you know, we are trying as a goal, I guess, to get that to 100% and even split. I think the other thing that was interesting for, from our perspective as a science museum is, of course, the, its potential for learning and knowledge and education and the sharing of that um, is, is absolutely significant. Uh, and so we mustn't almost holster ourselves uh, and prevent ourselves from using it as a, as a learning tool. Yeah, and, and, and a tool for good. Yeah, and a tool for good, um, absolutely. Going back to that computer, I've just got... Mm. Um, I, I, have you ever read Walter Isaacson's book on Steve Jobs? No, not yet. It's on my list. OK, I, I, I have. I mean, I, I say I've read it. I, I do audio books. I don't read because I don't find the time to read. So, But when okay. I'm out on the bike or something. And the lovely little anecdote. For me, just that connection of t people and time. So Steve Jobs got fired out yes. of Apple, started Next. Next then gave this 
11,000-pound computer mm. to CERN, which started the World Wide Web with Tim Berners-Lee. Yes. You know, Steve Jobs connected to Tim Berners-Lee, connected to Apple, connected... I love the whole fact that that whole string connects, you know... He then, Steve Jobs then went to Pixar and, you know, and yes. that's why Apple owned 20% of Disney. It's, it's, yes. You sort of get all these little dots that connect and it's wonderful. But anyway, it was that computer. I mean, that. But it's an interesting analogy because I think what I see when I see that kind of um, chain reaction is it's kind of lots of uh, buddies. Yes. You know, and that to me, is very male-dominated. And I think it ex- goes some way toward explaining why more men are using it than women. Female have buddies. Yeah, th- we do. But if we look at... Um, I, I, last year I did a... In fact, I've got it here, but last year I did a, a timeline of women in science. Right. Because I was talking at a conference about women in science. And we also forget about women in technology. You know, if you say to somebody, oh, well, you know, name me a a woman in technology, most people would probably ponder for a while and then probably come out with somebody like Ada Lovelace. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> 1842, first uh, computer, well, kind of acknowledged as the first computer programmer, although some people say, well, she wasn't actually programming herself because she was transcribing Charles Babbage's notes and, and, you know, but did she just transcribe them or did she augment them? Right. But she is recognised as one of the first um, computer programmers but then we have we have people like Hedy Lamarr who who used to be oh an actress obviously an actress and yet came up with something which now is fundamentally the uh, the the core of the bluetooth technology absolutely (laughs) and and a friend of ours has just joined the Ada Lovelace Institute Um, I'm sure you know him Azim Azar Yes. He's now yes. a board member yes. on the uh, Ada Lovelace yeah, Institute. Yeah, Exponential View, yeah. yeah. Of, uh, but, I mean, you know, I, I, as I said, I made this list of women. And I just kind of, I'll just give you a couple more oh, because you mentioned um, you mentioned Tim Berners-Lee. So, Tim Berners-Lee, he kind of came up with the um, hypertext transfer protocol and created the World Wide Web in 1989. And then following that, there was a lady called Sally Floyd, whose work was on TCP. Okay. Transmission Control Protocol, which also now regulates, in, you know, internet traffic. Yes. So TCP is pretty fundamental. A lot of people don't know that. I didn't know that. And I've been <laughs> in the industry 20-odd years. Yeah. And so there, there, there's this whole list, and I, I wanted to create this timeline just to show how quickly it's shifted. And, and there's quite interesting, if you bring it up a bit more recently, um, there have been three female winners of the Turing Prize and the Turing Award which is really about women, um, computer scientists solving incre- incredibly complex um, um, tech problems. And one of the first ones was a lady called Frances Allen in 2006. And she was a pioneer in the field of optimising compilers. Really? Okay. Again, not known. <laughs> so this is what I mean about... Uh, you you kind of pointed uh, about um, you know Steve Jobs linking to Tim Berners Lee linking to everything that we've now got, and I'm glad we have that. But I think um, going forward, the the contribution that women make to technology needs to be acknowledged in order to make sure it's no longer the sort of boys' club. Yeah, I, 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 look, we were talking earlier about. Um, the difference I perceive between men and women, okay, um, 
my wife would always say that, you know, a woman will wait till she's overqualified for a job, apply for it, get it, and then be straight jacketed or feel closeted by it because she's overqualified. She could do it in her sleep. Mm. Men will go for that job when they're clearly underqualified, blag it a little bit, get the job and then learn on the job and then move to the next bigger job. Mm. You know, is is that boys' club, you know, the, the Steve Jobs, the Elon Musks, the, you know... Mm. Is it because boys are prepared to take a risk, throw themselves up there and go early, and women aren't prepared to put themselves in that risk space? Because you very Mm. rarely... I mean, if you look at the number of big companies out there, there aren't really women running those companies. Yes. And why is that? It's not because they're not qualified to run them. They're not because they're intellectually less qualified. But what is it of the female gender that isn't giving you... The same is it? Is it a inequality uh, preconceived? You know, women can't do it, therefore they don't do it. Or is it they have a predisposition to taking risk? I think that's a really good question, and I don't think that women fall into that category of being, you know, risk averse. I, I'm an entrepreneur myself, right? And if we look at me, I take enormous risks compared to my husband. Who is more risk averse of the two? (laughs) And and there's lots of women, uh, you know, like myself. So I I don't think I'm unique on that. I think what I would prefer to say is I think we've got to look at the standards we set for women. So it's it's an external factor. We shouldn't be saying, oh, well, well, you know, women have to change themselves. They have to become more risk, uh, you know, acceptance and all that. I don't think it's that women have to change. I think the parameters by which we measure... um, uh, men and women have to change. So we like to change the system rather than tr- trying to get women to change themselves in order to fit a system. So are you saying that women are trying to fit into what is a boys' club yeah, mentality absolutely. rather than Correct. change the whole club and come up with a new club? Yes. So if you look um, away from technology for a minute, if you look at um, FTSE 100 companies, uh, I'll give you that as an example, uh, women have gone um, from underrepresentation to at least 30% on boards of FTSE 100 companies. And then that's all been driven by the um, Lord Davis review of women on boards. So can I just say on that point, because I love your opinion and then let you go, I apologise for interrupting, but my wife's on numerous boards and I say to her, are you just the tick box? No, uh, I think what uh, is interesting about it is before... Um, recruiting somebody onto the board you need to look at the specification that you have set because that in itself is the system and if your system has been driven by what you've had before who who would probably be a white male of you know a accountant certain, or city banker yes exactly so then if that is the job specification then then that's you and I both would agree right now that it's the specification that's at fault. So you've got to decide. You've actually got to change the system of the way you recruit. So you are not recruiting to what you've had before. You are recruiting to what you would want in the future. But but, but the, I, I fundamentally believe that the men in those roles, the, the, the white, grey-suited men are being forced to change, not what they want to change. So as much as you're saying we've got to rewrite that spec to 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 look forward, 
they, they, yeah, they don't I... want to do that. They don't want to do it. They're f- being forced to do it on the basis that if they don't, they stand out like a sore thumb. So we've got to look at why do you want to be diverse, right? So why why would you a company want to be diverse? That's a good question to Great ask. Great question. And uh, there's a wonderful organisation called McKinsey has done a lot of research, and I mean a lot of research, on this very issue. And the things that they have discovered, for example, is that um, diverse boards are more stable. They take fewer high um, risk factors. They are more representative of customers. They are more representative of suppliers. They're more representative of employees. They have, and this is the bottom line, they have greater profitability than companies, uh, less diverse companies in their same sector. Okay. So these are facts, you know, that McKinsey's researched and put out there. So I think this um, idea that diversity is just something nice to have is false. Diversity is absolutely essential if you are a global business um, in the future. Look, I don't disagree with you. It's just uh, from observation, I can go to number of meetings with my wife who's on the board and I will look around and I'll still be the only Indian in the room. Yes. I'll still be the only... And she'll be one of the rare few women in the room. Yes. It is still an old boys, white male club. And but it is changing. I will say it is changing. And I think at the moment we see diversity to um, <laughs> to use a, a terrible... In a very black and white term. So we're <laughs> seeing it in, in, in gender terms. And we're seeing it in uh, race terms. And we're seeing it in disability terms. And it's actually, the thing I'm talking about is diversity of viewpoint. Okay. And diversity of viewpoint, therefore, doesn't reside in a particular type of, you know, uh, individual. But we're not there yet. Yeah. Uh, that diversity of viewpoint will come some years hence when we have normalised diversity, diverse boards as normal. Yeah. And actually, undiverse boards will be the outliers. They'll be the, you know, Absolutely. The, the remnants I- of a bygone age. Yes. Uh, and so we're not there yet, but we are making progress. Um, if you look at the at FTSE 100, for example, um, it has gone up to the 30% mark that um, was set by Lord Davies. Uh, it's now being expanded to FTSE 250 and FTSE 350 companies. The business minister a couple of weeks ago actually wrote to all the chairs of the FTSE 100 companies and say, actually, you also need to employ ethnically diverse individuals. So there is a lot of pressure are being put on um, the biggest of companies. And generally the idea is that that trickles down into, you know, smaller companies and and the wider um, uh, public sector and so on. Companies have to reflect their market, mm. um, and which is what you're fundamentally saying. If you want to be more profitable, you need to understand it. Uh, and at board level, that's great. Um, a couple of um, examples, I'd love your opinion. So um, earlier last year... Um, Google had a massive problem with their engineering teams being white bro culture. Mm. Uh, And there was that famous letter that came out of Google or email, shall I say, um, where it was like, you know, this woman, women can't be engineers, was the the, the guy's view. He was, you know, completely uh, a Trump-supporting type, and I'll leave it at that. Um, But that caused a massive backlash. And, you know, and, and the Google board incredulously said, oh, we'll look into this as if it wasn't something they were aware of. 
and and that worried me. So, and and the last part of my question, I guess, to you is because that culture exists outside the board, and we haven't really fixed that either. Mm. um, The isms I'm going to call it: um, fascism, racism, sexism. are being built into the algorithms that we see today. So Facebook's algorithm, Google's algorithm, we have no idea what's inside that algorithm. It's a set of code. We know that, but we don't get to see it. And, you know, we we saw with the election for Trump, you know, how um, Cambridge Analytica played the algorithm to the effect, allegedly, that changed people's mind. I can't imagine me changing my mind that much, but people supposedly changed their mind mm. due to an algorithm of what you mm. saw and what you didn't. Google gives me what I expect to see, but I don't know what it's not giving me. Mm. I don't know what Facebook's mm. not giving me. Mm. And if it's been designed by white bro culture... Yes, that worries you. Yeah. Absolutely, it should worry us all. And you're absolutely right that algorithms are biased. by They're biased on the basis of whoever's written them. And yes. historically, the people who've written them have been, uh, you know, young white men, actually. Not old white men, but young white yes. men. Uh, you know, working in their garages and, and so on. I think the founders had started out at university together, wasn't what, it? What, the Google ones? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that, that that's kind of historical. And it is, uh, I think, Google and all the companies are absolutely worried about that because that shows a bias that I think any company wouldn't want to have um, simply because it's it's um, a technical bias uh, which you need to have overcome. So I think with the use of... There was an interesting article recently about AI and how biased that is against yeah. women because, again, it's a lot of the AI technologies have, is, are being driven by men. Well, Amazon famously wrote a, an AI job recruitment uh, yeah. site uh, and they found that women were failing the whole process. Yes. And they couldn't work this out. And it turned out the algorithm was biased towards men. Correct. It was weeding them out at the early sort stage. Exactly. <laughs> So, they've, so yeah, they've scrapped not, it now. Yeah, thank goodness. Um, what, what? Just coming back to your point about what role can uh, we all play? Because I think actually we, and that, and by that I mean the public, us, you know, as individuals, have quite a strong role to play in that, in terms of how we consume information. Um, so I have a, a, a friend, uh, Jess Wade, I don't know if you know no, about her. No. So Jess Wade is uh, a researcher at Imperial and um, what she's done is she looked at Wikipedia and said, goodness me, it doesn't really have a lot of profiles of women scientists. So she personally wrote 500 profiles wow. of women scientists because that's women she she knew about or you know uh, um, could research. And she started an almost amazing industry of correcting that. And you might think, oh, well, what difference does that make? It makes a huge difference because Wikipedia is now one of the most referenced resources. Absolutely. And so it is in a sense that, yeah, understanding that the search might be biased, but you can actually influence the search by just feeding it more content and correcting the content through things like Wikipedia. And similarly, you and I both, uh, you know, have run websites. We know how to run a website in order to um, uh, feed the search engine correctly. Absolutely, yeah. And, and correct biases which have existed. So a lot of people complain to me about Wikipedia, you know, not rep- representing, um, 
you know, Indians properly or, or, or certain, you know, or not representing certain geopolitics correctly. And so, so my answer is don't just sit there and wait. If you know that it's incorrect, then try and get it corrected. Because Jess is, has shown that it is possible to do. And now what's happened is that Wikipedia actually has hackathons and things like that where people can uh, join in and write a profile of somebody that they admire or they know about. And it gets referenced and it gets put uh, published and it's helping to create that standard and that platform which wasn't there before which takes you back to tim berners lee which mm. was the democratization of the Absolutely. world you know and and the simplicity of uh, html to allow people to update wikipedia without any hardcore coding skills yes. you know and and that i think is the great thing that the web's given us it is the ability for your friend you know to go and put 500 profiles up to mm. give that knowledge that you know, she may have known, but nobody else knew about, or very mm. few. Um, so, yeah, the democratisation. But again, I go back to, we, we're looking at the fact that um, the web is 30 years old. Mm. It, it's at a, is it at a tipping point? It's not, at a, I was going to say breaking point, but that's not true. No, it's, it's never at a breaking, a breaking point. point. But no. it is it at a tipping point. Um, because we're talking about, well, I'm going to, talk about Facebook and, and, and the like sucking data in like a black hole. Um, and Tim Berners-Lee was clearly worried about, um, you know, the way that data is being used um, and manipulated. Mm. Um, and he wants this, you call it a smart contract. Mm. Um, so if we're going to move forward with the web, um, where do you see it going next? I mean, wh what do you see the web has to do to make... I guess it more evenly spread. Um, you know, what was what was Tim Berners-Lee's slide? The, the the future is here is just not evenly distributed, That's which right. is William Gibson's. Yes. And and how are we going to get to get Africa, India, the rest of the world onto the web? How are we going to do that? Wow. To ask me a simple question, won't you, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> Digital entrepreneur, we're going for it. Well, I think what sort of was in the back of my mind when I was listening to Tim Berners-Lee is that he kind of um, blitz-scaled his business. Now, I use that term blitz-scale because that's not my term. It's the term uh, that Reid Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn, has used to describe how certain businesses like Facebook, like Airbnb, like Uber, have basically grown. And he's saying that the techniques those businesses have used um, to grow are are not the conventional te techniques that businesses have okay. used in the past. So yeah. it's, a, it's a specific term. Or, and, and in a sense, uh, Tim Berners-Lee is, is blitz-scaled the World Wide Web without realising that's what he's done. He kind of just gave it to the world yeah. without constraints, without parameters, um, without slowing it down, um, you know, in, in any way. And then, of course... Um, it's uh, now everybody feels that they own a piece of it, that, that you know, that they, there isn't any one government or one individual owning it. And I think that's the beauty of the World Wide Web. So I don't think that we are in, at any kind of a um, point where you could put the genie back in the bottle. That's just not possible. What he was trying to say with his contract for the web was that we should, as decent people have a contract with the way we would 
use the web. And he's, the contract applies to governments, it applies to corporations, and it applies to us as individual users. So you can look, look that up on the World Wide uh, Web Foundation's page um, as to what he's, he's calling for a contract. But I, I think the, the comment you had, uh, you know, how are we going to get the other 50% who are not on it? I'm not sure that that is our problem to solve. Okay. Okay. And I, I and I, the reason I say that is because we have a very uh, Western view of uh, where we are in adoption of technology. And actually, when you go to Africa, when you go to uh, Asia and countries like that, their adoption is quite um, rapid. It might not be in the sorts of areas that we anticipate. So, so for example, if you look at China, they kind of didn't really, they, they weren't allowed the option of having Facebook. and all sorts. So they've gone down things like WeChat and, you know, chatting kind of applications. Yeah, and payments and stuff yeah, like and that. Yeah, and they're ahead on, on Alipay and things yeah. like that, much further ahead than we are. And similarly, if you go to India, for example, they have actually managed to embrace uh, a biometric Passport, which we have not managed to do anywhere in Is the West. One billion people. Yeah, now? one billion people, and and it's now used for delivery of public services and things like banking. So I think to say that um, we need to get everybody up to our level on this worldwide is that an ambition these people have? I'm not sure. Now, I what, think what. Go on, sorry. No, no I, I think you're right about access to technology, but some of these countries have leapfrogged us by going straight to mobile, for example. Yeah, I mean, in Africa, you yes. mentioned, you know, they came up with mobile payments, M-Pesa. Yeah, M-Pesa, yeah. Yeah, you know, mm. way before we did happen. Correct. You know, and because, because of necessity and need, they couldn't have telegraph and broadband, so they, they created a payment mechanism and a digital currency yes. for themselves. And I, I get that. I didn't mean how do we... You know, this is not colonialism in the old empire sense of the you know the West goes to the world, rest yeah. of the world and tells you how to get the web. I mean, mm. how does how do we just get the rest of the world to the web? You know, Facebook's got this foundation that they're trying to do, which is mm. uh, it's got a double edged sword. Some people say you know Mark Zuckerberg's being altruistic and you know bringing balloons and internet and to the world. And I was yes. saying he's just trying to get more people onto Facebook, you know. <laughs> I'm not sure he can ever win. Um, well, no, I, there is a win there. I, I absolutely um, applaud any of these um, internet companies that are setting up foundations because they are huge, huge companies with huge sums of money of which very little is actually being put into uh, philanthropic activities and so i i welcome anything that google or facebook or any of them want to do in and i would you know they've got a great example in bill gates on what to do with you know billions of dollars of money which you actually don't know what to do with so mm, i with bill i love what he's doing him and melinda gates with the foundation but there's also, if you've read his book, there is a point when he was not so philanthropic mm. where he was very much about his legacy mm. and he saw the fact that he wanted museums named in his name and to leave his legacy. Mm. And so I, I think he's changed, but yes. I think he originally did the foundation with the goal of leaving a footprint on the planet that would always be Bill Gates. Yes, I mean, you know... I guess if if you are Bill Gates, then you do want to be remembered for being Bill Gates. Uh, but having said all of that, that you know the Gates Foundation's 
mission of of finding a cure for AIDS and and, and you know ending the deaths due to malaria and all of those kinds of things are are very admirable. They are. They and, are. But we don't see that on the same scale from the newer tech companies. I mean, Microsoft is, is, is actually a relatively old tech company. You know, it's been yeah. around for many, many more years. But the newer tech companies literally uh, could be doing a lot more. Uh, and, yeah, well, and famously, Amazon's done nothing. Absolutely. And then yeah. Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world. So. Yeah, and he has fundamentally not done anything. <laughs> Jeff, come on. Yes. You know. Yes. Um, okay. Sign well, up to the pledge of uh, yeah, giving away your fortune in your uh, lifetime. Well, he just did half of his fortune, actually. He, ga- he just gave it away to his ex wife. Um, so I think he's got little less fortune to give away now. Well, I think he's. Uh, yeah. I'm sure he's a happy man still. Yeah, he wouldn't be. Um, okay. So look. I'm going to take us back a little bit. So, so obviously you're working a lot with the the UK IPO government thing. You're at the Science Museum, but let's take it back, back, back. Okay. Yes. Uh, young Loper Patel. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. Child uh, number three in a family of uh, yeah, with four children. And and for an Indian family, underachieving completely. Four well, only. What, what happened to the other thirteen? <laughs> well, there is some. I think in retrospect, there is some. Uh, benefit of being child number three so I have an older brother um and an older sister and and they kind of have made the achievements so there wasn't that much of an expectation on me which I think I have actually benefited from (laughs) you weren't under the pressure (laughs) I wasn't under the pressure but then similarly uh you know I had to kind of really um outdo the other two in order to be kind of you know favorite child for a while (laughs) (laughs) i mean because okay so some number one had to achieve everything yes right so what did he achieve what what, what did he do my brother is an accountant he's perfect uh, he's an an entrepreneur he's uh, he's just uh yeah coming up to retirement but yeah he's uh, okay so who had the first grandchild Ah, uh, yeah, he did. See, yeah, he's ticking <laughs> yeah, all the boxes. So he's the son. Yes, he's set the up golden the business. Boy. He's an accountant. <laughs> yeah, he's got the yeah first grandchild. He's the golden boy. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> but then when, again, it took, as you say, it took all the pressure off you. And then my sister, you know, first to go to Oxford. You know. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh no! Actually, that's not good. So that's not good at all. No, because that put the real pressure on you. Look so, at. Better look. Yes. She's done beautiful. What about you? Exactly. You know, so, you know, me getting, I actually was a couple of years ago, I was given an honorary doctorate by the Open University. And I kind of finally thought, yes, I can hold my own against my siblings. And um, and my mum was, yes, that's nice, dear. You know? <laughs> that's nice, dear. Oh, my Lord. Your family's got a very high bar. Oh, dearie me. Tell me about that. <laughs> Uh, and the fourth fourth sibling is just like chilled, just travelling. Oh no, she's a dentist. Oh, okay. So I mean, you know, professional dentist, underachieving uh, family. Yeah, I think. I oh, come on, <laughs> Limey. Um So okay, so um, we were talking earlier. You you, you came uh, to England from um, from Kenya. That's it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I love this story, so I'm going to ask you to tell it. Your parents bought a shop, and what was the shop? And what was so when we came here, we um, were we, we came in, in in August, and we were staying with my uh, my uncle and auntie in their two two and a half bedroom house. So there were kind of 
11 of us in a two-bed, which is kind of the Asian thing to do. Obviously, we were like, you know, a little bit overcrowded. So immediately my father started looking for a business that he and his wife could run and they wanted to buy a corner grocery store and I was amazed. His wife being your mother. My mum, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry yeah, just sorry. checking. Yeah. And um, yeah, so it was amazing that we, um, he, he went to Hornsey and he bought this shop and it was uh, really interesting that we, when we got there that we actually bought a shop um, you know, uh, which had a sign in it saying "No dogs, no Irish, no black people." So we, we, we thought it was kind of amusing that we uh, managed to buy a shop that doesn't allow us inside the shop, but we managed to buy it. You have to buy it to go in. Yeah, <laughs> but I think that was, uh, you know, in that era, that was the the norm. Yeah, and my- it's appalling that that was the norm, but. Um, I mean, I was, I'll just tell you this little mm. story about um, we at Diversity UK, which is the, the think tank, which I'll tell you about a little bit later on, but we've um, uh, named a lecture in the honour of Paul Stevenson. And a lot of people don't know about Paul Stevenson, but he is um, a Bristolian and he had taken on the establishment um, through the bus company because the bus company refused to employ any non-white bus conductors. What gen- generation dates? This is 1962. Okay. And so he... Um, uh, basically boycotted the bus company and he was joined in this boycott and the boycott lasted for 60 days and in the end um, the Bristol bus company had to give in and the first um, non-white conductor was actually an Asian man. Right. And Paul, so so Paul is, is equivalent to our British civil rights campaigner because his work led to the first Race Equality Act of 1963. So, wow. Yeah, it's, uh, well... When my dad came over, he was a qualified accountant and he tried to get a job. And, of course, the standard answer was Indians can't count. How can you be an accountant? They, there's no way. So he got a job as a bus conductor. Wow. And that was, that was the only job they thought he merited because Indians didn't merit having an intellectual job. I find that incredible, don't you find that? I mean, as an Asian, I just can't believe... Because every Asian I know, the first thing they can do is count. (laughs) Especially money. money. (laughs) If it's money, we're we're counting it. Yeah, you know, you're not catching us out. Yeah, exactly. And then they're so canny. I'm just uh, amazed that anybody would have that viewpoint. (laughs) I'm just amazed the word entrepreneur is not Indian. And it's yes. French. He should have come out of India. Well, you know, Asian entrepreneur kind of seems to be, uh, you know, uh, it's just the, the two go so well together. Well, I remember telling my mama was an entrepreneur. She couldn't go to any Indian party and tell, tell that because it wasn't a doctor, accountant or lawyer. She had no idea what an entrepreneur was, so she could never tell anyone what <laughs> <laughs> she couldn't boast about it. My son's an entrepreneur. Well, what's that? I don't know. And it was well, like, my my mum still doesn't know what I do because yeah. I've got the word entrepreneur and digital, and she understands yeah, neither but concept. I bet of she that. knows what MBE means. Oh yes, she does know that. <laughs> yes, that's when you trumped every one of your siblings. Well, that was that was a real that was a real honour. And we'll come back and talk about that shortly. So going back to it, um, you, you've come to England. Your parents have bought the shop. Yes. Um, uh, obviously, we both know from our age and our experience, you know, that, that there was a lot of racism. It, was, it wasn't it was overtly, in my case, um, I never really had direct racism. Occasional, mm. you know, idiots, but nothing major. Mm. But I was very aware of it. Um, yeah, and, and my parents were very aware because of that comment you said, you know. Mm. Um, but after 
that you went on to obviously you said you did a science degree to begin yes. with. Yes. So no at school I was really loved English and geography. So I decided I would do English and geography and my mum stepped in at that point and said, No, 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 no dear, we're Indian. <laughs> you have to do science. <laughs> and actually I didn't mind. I you know, I kind of loved studying because we we weren't allowed we were quite a conventional family. We weren't allowed the going out and partying and all that. Yeah. None of that was allowed. We Indian girls were never allowed out. No. So... I was so lonely for years. I found <laughs> I'd go out and there'd be no one. We were saved from you, Sam. <laughs> your mother was wise, very wise. So the girls, we had the choice of um, studying uh, or working in the shop. Right. And, you know, working in the shop is great, but it's studying so much more uh, enriching personally. So, you know, we're allowed to go to the library and things like that. So studying became quite normal. So, yeah, so I did um, uh, physics, chemistry and biology. Wow. And then at A-level, I remember my brother, the accountant, um, came home one day and he he kind of telling us a story about the delivery of his latest computer, which was an IBM mainframe. And um, sorry, delivery of his computer, not to home. Then no, 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 to his um, business okay. uh, premises. But it was such a big machine that they had to take the windows out on the first floor in order to winch this machine in. <laughs> I had to say that probably the combined computing power of that machine would now fit into a mobile phone. Or, or even less. Even less. But anyway, at that time, it was kind of, you know, stopping main, main road traffic and winching in this. And I thought, that's really exciting. I really don't know anything about computing. So I decided I would go and um, do a BTEC in computing, computer wow. science. And I did, um, which was, and what was surprising for me is actually I found it quite easy. So we were doing programming, uh, C++, if you remember it. Um, we start with BASIC and then we do Fortran and Pascal and, and, and end up we're doing C++. Basically, it is raw programming. Yeah, down to the, down to the core yeah, level. Core you know, level, chip level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I was surprised. I always kind of had in my head that you had to do maths to be good at computers, but you don't actually. Um, what you have to be good at is structure and order and logic. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's it, and curiosity. I think is the other yeah. one. Yeah, no, and and sort of adjacent to whilst I was studying computing, I was also working in the library at Wood Green. Some people would know it, and so I, I kind of have a librarian's viewpoint. I like to organise information, which is actually what computers are all about it's all, it's a mass scale of organization of information google's strapline at one point organizing the world's information exactly so it kind of came naturally to me um and um i, I wanted to carry on with it but because i didn't have the maths a level at the time um uh, i've fell back into um, studying biochemistry and, and applied molecular biology which was genetics which actually used a lot of um computing uh, in order to define the, the gene sequence and things like that. So, yeah, it's always mm. been... So that one-year BTEC in computer science is actually what's been driving my entire career to date. Do you, do you still ever roll the sleeves up, get a bit of code out? Oh, yeah, you know? definitely, definitely. <laughs> really? I'm really glad that we've moved away from the early days. So when I did my first um, site, it was literally a lot of hard coding. Yeah. So um, 
not only do you have to write the HTML and all that content, but also if you wanted to put a subroutine and to do something, you actually had to write it. But now we've moved into compiled languages where you just drop in modules of things that you yeah, want to do. Yeah, a bit do. of JavaScript here, bit of JavaScript yeah, there. Yeah, and you don't have to write it. You just Somebody's already written it. You yeah. just plug it in and, and, and so on. And now I've moved to uh, WordPress, which is literally every, driven by plugins. So basically you just plug things in to do it. And, yeah. and that just has made the whole thing... Um, and I love the acronym, which is OLE. I love that, you know, object linking and embedding, which OLE. <laughs> well, I, I used to work at Microsoft. And right. uh, we in, I remember we used to do that. So we used to, um, I had a friend of mine, Stephanie Hutchins, in a couple of weeks back, who's ex-Microsoft. And we were talking about this is a very simple fact that um, I used to be one of the Microsoft demo dollies, as I call it. Oh, right. Um, I was a systems engineer. And, and we used to show people, you know, here's Word, here's Excel. Look, I'm going to make a chart. And now I'm going to drag and drop that. And it was. <laughs> Olé, look. Yeah. And it was. I don't know. It's, and, and that yeah. was the height of computing at one I point. know. It was kind of, um, yeah, uh, it's uh, 80s, would you say? Probably a bit later, 80s. Late, late 80s. Yeah. Late 80s, early, early 90s. 90s. Yeah. But it revolutionised the speed at which you could run your business. Yes. Uh, and that's the, one of the reasons I would do a lot of it myself, you know, roll up the sleeves and actually do it myself, because I would then understand um, what is driving um, my businesses. So now we've moved very much to cloud-based services being given to us. So, for example, accounting, you, you know, most people now use cloud-based accounting and CRM uh, systems are online. So we tend to use a lot of cloud-based systems without owning them or having to customise them. They've been done for us. So that's kind of the, the benefit. So there's a brilliant guy. If you've, I don't know if you've ever heard of Roland Course. No. So he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1937. Okay. And he came up with a white paper called The Diminishing Law of Firms. And he, in clearly in 1937, mm. was talking about core v. context. And he said, fundamentally, a business core, whatever it may be, mm. is what you need to keep in-house. Mm. Control it, manage it, run it, build it. That's your USP. But he said, outside of that is your context, your accounting, your janitors, your security, mm. your mm. whatever else, cloud. We now use mm. them as cloud services. But prior mm. to that, they were another firm that did it. Mm. For example, you'd outsource your accounting to the accountant. Now we do zero or mm. we do, you know, mm. Sage. Mm. Um, so that whole, and so he came up in 1937, the diminishing law of firms, which is mm. fundamentally where we are today. Mm. It's, um, so mm. if you hadn't uh, read him, that's who he is. But um, I think what's interesting for larger organisations and public sector particularly is that you're very um, exposed to a lot of it being outsourced in that way. Right. Um, so you just need to be clear that you are able to support the ecosystem. So what I mean by that is uh, we've seen it in the press quite a lot about large-scale infrastructure companies uh, going into administration and things like that. So if you've got a great deal of exposure uh, to those kinds of companies. Um, so I think we've got to, there, there is a period of rebalancing because some things really need to be core. And I think at the moment, perhaps the balance is not right. Too much has gone non-core and so on. Uh, and so if you talk about cybersecurity, for example, it's very, very tempting to just make everything, you know, outsource everything, even your cybersecurity. But actually, um, the loophole holes are usually the very, very simple ones um, that people can exploit. And those will always be core to something. So you can't 
outsource everything in life and similarly you can't outsource everything in a business. But then what you're arguing is that security is core to the business. Yes, I would say it is. And and, and so it shouldn't have ever been outsourced. Mm. Um, Mm. And that's, that's, you know, the challenge. I mean, uh, look, without getting political, I think if Corbyn gets in, he wants to nationalise everything, bring it back into the centre and and the Tories outsource everything. Mm. Um, you know, to the extent where the NHS is being outsourced. Mm, so, mm. you know, that in government terms is where we are there. But in human terms, in individual terms, yeah. we have outsourced a lot of our data, if you remember. Okay. We're mm. willing to trade our personal information for freebie services. Well, we have because, I mean, the famous expression is, you know, if you don't pay for it, then you are the product. Yes. And, and our contract with Twitter, Facebook and nearly... Gmail, everything else that is, oh, look, you can have this for free. Really? Oh, actually, it's my favourite expression is never free. It's at my expense. And that fundamentally is what it is. It's at my expense. My data is being harvested yes. at my expense. Correct. And I, although I think it's free, it's not free. I, I, I am paying for it in other yes, terms. Exactly. And I think you and I, um, having come through, um, you know, sort of the internet era, if you like, are much wiser to that. I think what I'm concerned about is the younger generation who are digital natives, who've always grown up in a digital world. They almost feel um, that that's the norm, you know, and then that's why they can't do without their social media. They can't do without their phones. They can't do with it without the connectedness. Um, And that, to me, is an issue, that we need to give them the choice to say, actually... You don't have to be this connected. You know, if if you're suffering, for example, if you're being trolled uh, or bullied on, on social media, the freedom is to actually not having to participate in that. Just uh, I, I'm not sure you can disassociate uh, yourself. Just because you put your fingers in your ears and go la 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 doesn't mean that what's being said and done to you isn't still occurring. No, I, I don't... I, uh, that, that that isn't what I meant. But oh, what okay. I meant to say is that you uh, you can step away from it. You don't have to uh, be on Twitter. You don't have to be on everything. You don't have to use everything to the maximum capacity, such that you are constantly sacrificing your life to something, feeding a sort of social engine. That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah, and there's, there's two parts to that. One is FOMO, the fear of missing out. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I watch my 14-year-old daughter, and my 19-year-old daughter now has got control of her social media habit. Mm. So she's less 24-7, yeah. constantly, breakfast, lunch, dinner, wake up, go to sleep on it. She now has time when she's off it. Mm. Whereas my 14-year-old, you know, mm. it's literally umbilically attached to her and... You know, I, I jokingly the other night put it in my back pocket and and told her I don't know where the phone is, just for a laugh. She would pull the house apart trying to find it. You yeah. know, it was so it was like a crack cocaine addict. Yes, who couldn't get to it. Yes, um, and that was FOMO, fear of missing out. And they, they, those systems are designed for FOMO. Um, yes, you know, I'll give you an example. You and I grew up in the era of watching TV or reading a book, mm. which had a chapter or had a, an episode, and it was finished so that you know you and i could say it's all right i'm going to read to the end of this chapter then i'll close my book and then i'll read tomorrow or i'll watch this episode and then next week i'll watch the next episode but facebook twitter et al snapchat Mm. it's a constant stream you get to the bottom and what happens is like a you know like a a wheel 
you go, oh, I wonder's at the top again. And yeah. you go, start again. Yeah. And you yes. never can come off it. Yes. And they're designed to keep your attention on because the minute you come off, you know, the red dot, what is that? That's just a trigger to get you back on. Yes, you know, exactly. It's. But I mean, I think for well-being, particularly for mental well-being and happiness, mm. I think it is incumbent of every individual, or there should be the freedom to take back control of what's inside your head. I, I fully you agree know, with and you. I know it sounds weird, but we are at the cusp of of some people, particularly in gaming, for example, quite happy to to have things placed on their head and having you know almost being able to control things with their thoughts. Yeah, I, well, it, it, you know, and where do we go with this? I I, I think what I'm worried about, and and this is what you're saying as well, is our kids have got to the point where they just consume this as content. I mean, yes. you know, binge watching is another example. Yes, you know, correct. you can't watch one episode, you have, you have to, to watch, watch the 15, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, mm. I have to say me and my wife have done that, you know, we'd watch Homeland, it wouldn't be one, we'd watch the whole lot, you know, and yes. then go to bed at three in the morning and go, oh, oh I'm, I'm really so tired. tired. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, um, yes. But, but how, you know, I mean, Apple and, and Google have brought out... Um, Recently, you know, apps that are on your phone that tell you how much time you've been on. Yes. And I don't know if you heard, instead of helping kids get off it and go, oh, I've been on it six hours today, I better go. No, they've now got leagues which show that you're not doing it enough. So now oh, only six hours. Oh, I was on it eight hours yesterday. I was on it for 12 hours. So they, 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 yeah. they're reversing the value pop, yeah, which exactly. is really scary. Which is crazy. Um, yeah. Go on. No, no, I, I think, it, I mean, you and I both know what should happen is it should shut itself down automatically and say, right, go off and have a 10-minute break and go and, you know, um, go outside in the garden for five minutes or something and do some You try doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember once taking my phone off my 14, my, who's now 19, phone off her. I've never heard language out of my daughter like that ever since. Yes. I mean, she was swearing and screaming at me and telling me all sorts of things. Yes. I I've had that. I, I had to confiscate my daughter's phone um, when she was in school, in secondary school, for a week mm. because she had way overspent um, her allowance on, on, on the phone. Right. And um, she was sort of struggling on with it herself, you know, this penance. She knew she had to pay, be punished. So she was struggling on with it. But I was amazed at the number of phone calls and emails I got from her friends telling me how depressed she was <laughs> and how, you know, and using all that kind of really yep, emotive blackmail. blackmail yeah. Exactly, to try. And so I had to hold out against that. And, and I think she and I both came through that better for it for that discipline right um so but i, I like you I, I am worried about that discipline and this constantly having to be entertained and, and this fear of missing out i mean i've got to the point where i'm glad i'm missing out i don't know if there's a, an acronym for that but uh, sometimes uh, you know you don't have to appreciate everything everybody else appreciates i think you could just stop and take time for yourself and appreciate what you like to do. I think that comes with age and maturity. Yeah. Yes, it does. Um, I don't. I, I was one of the early adopters of Twitter. I'm sure you were. Um, I don't use Twitter anymore. I find the whole thing a waste of time. It's mm. become a broadcast medium. Mm. Um, I use Facebook for family and friends. Uh, um, uh, I very rarely use LinkedIn. Um, I don't see again mm. the value mm. propositions. Mm. So my my social media 
consumption mm. has dropped dramatically from, let's say, 10 years ago, where mm. I think I, I thought I had to read the whole of Twitter yes. in order to participate, and yes. now I just don't bother. Um, what I find interesting for myself is I'm still using all that uh, social media, but um, it's my TV watching that's consumption that's changed, okay. the pattern that's changed. Time shifting. Yeah. Yeah, and, we hardly and, watch telly at home. And doing it on my own terms yeah. and in my own time. And, and I actually enjoy it more. So, interesting. Well, we're coming up to the news. And then when we come back, we want to talk about your other two online businesses. Yes, and I want to find out what you got that MBE for. And okay. I want to find out lots and lots more. And then we're going to talk about where it all goes again okay. for you. Um, but one of the last points I'd say is kids... Uh, we've created that kids' problem, by the way, because we were scared of the paedophiles and the, the yes. boogeyman. We've brought them in-house and we've said to them, now you can play on your digital playgrounds, but only for a little while. Yes. So we should let them out? Should we keep them in? I think we need to empower them to make these decisions for themselves. Indeed, I fully agree. Anyway, after the news, we'll be back. and We'll be playing one of your tracks as well. But uh, in the meantime, let's go to the news. You're listening to Sam Sethi on Marlow FM. Don't worry, he'll be back after the news. 5FM and online, this is Marlow FM 97.5. It might seem crazy what I'm about to say.
Welcome back. Hello, Will. And that's uh, Pharrell Williams now. Happy. I dare you to not be able to tap your toe while listening to that one. Um, why, why that song? Well, it is, Sam, International Day of Happiness. It is, yay! <laughs> but I just love the song. I just Every time I hear it, it just automatically brings a smile to my face and it just kind of, you know, sets a lighter mood. Um, and it I, does. Yeah. Did you ever see all the videos that were done for it? And yes. you know, all the people around the world, you know, dancing to it. It was just amazing. It's like Gangnam Style as well. That always makes oh. me laugh. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm not doing that. That's uh, very embarrassing. <laughs> it takes one too many prosecco's uh, yes. for me to do that one. Um, okay, so we we were talking a little bit about the young Lopa Patel and, mm. and and growing up and and going to university. Now you're at Manchester, mm-hmm. and um, you were saying, well, you were telling me off air that you ended up doing the student magazine. Yes. So- uh, well, Manchester's an amazing, amazing university. And the one thing about Manchester is it's just so um, open and demographic, you know, not demog- uh, democratic. And it is very much, it gives you the opportunity to try things for yourselves. So I got there and, uh, again, I'm on a science degree. But in the second year, I decided, you know what, I want to be the editor of the student union newspaper and they had hustings. I thought, yeah, I'm going to throw my name in there. And sure enough, they all said, yeah, go on, you can do it. We'll vote for you. So they all voted me in. And there I was. I suddenly had this job as the editor. <laughs> <laughs> having never done it before. Having never done it before, having no experience. Um, you know, and uh, that's what that university gives you. It really is. Um, in fact, it's one of the first that's had a, um, a black um, student union president. Um, oh, yeah, didn't and, know that. and we have the wonderful Lem Cisse as our Chancellor now. And so it is really a, a wonderful place in, in that it's so open and it gives you the chance to do things. But that one opportunity actually defined my future sort of entrepreneurial career because that taste of early um, immediate experience um, led me to um, founding a direct marketing company, a database marketing company, and then going on to set up my first um, internet, uh, well, web-based sort of magazine called Red Hot Curry. Yeah, <clears throat> I, was just, I was just having a look there. What, what was Red Hot Shop, though? Was that uh, the precursor to it? Uh, well, <clears throat> no, Red Hot Curry, I know, I'm <coughs> disappointed everyone here, it isn't about curry. <laughs> it was originally meant to be, but then the moment I kind of uh, published it, um, it it just, there was obviously a demand. It is targeted at the Asian community, the Asian diaspora in the UK. And they started reading it and then they said, you know, we want a bit more news and we want more new, uh, business and we want more Well, that was because we were underrepresented Absolutely. across all media platforms. Correct. Um, you know, uh, Six Asian, uh, Asian Network, you know, on the BBC yes, came, came out after. many, many, yeah. many years ago. Yeah. yeah. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's still, uh, it's still going. It's very much now focused back on curry. So we got back to the original original ideal but for a period of time um so i launched it in 2001 and for a period of time we had exponential growth uh and it just kind of went on and it became a very broad news magazine which surprises everybody because obviously red hot curry doesn't kind of imply news mm. yeah okay um I and then so what i did in 2015 was i set up a new asian post which is news um 
targeted at the Asian community, Asian diaspora, and um, Red Hot Curry then refocused back onto food. And um, you can buy cooking utensils there. I'll just give that plug <laughs> and get the odd recipe and buy some cookbooks and things like that. Uh, but if you want to read about news targeted at the Asian community, um, obviously New Asian Post uh, is the new um, portal for that. Um, Moving on, within New Asian Post, there were, again, it was all about engaging with the community. So I do two major lists. In December of each year, I publish a list called the Asian Power Couples, mm. which is basically... The do they top. both have to be Asian? Yes, they have to be Asian. <laughs> yes, sadly, sadly. And more specifically, South Asian, which is... Why, why just South Asian? Uh, simply because I can... Um, you know, I, I know a lot of people in that community, oh, so okay. I can actually, you know, I do know that they are South Asian. I can okay. research them a little bit better and so on. So it's the Hot 100. It's called the Asian Power Couples. Um, that comes out in December. And then the second one, um, which comes out in June, is the Top 100 Asian Stars in UK Tech. Yeah, I've been on that once. Yes, and that's an, it's now in its fifth year. So this is our fifth celebration. And it's amazing what that has done for underrepresented individuals in the tech sector. Yeah. Uh, it came about from um, conversations with Accelerator Wira UK. Um, Wira is Telefonica's um, business accelerator. And they'd done a piece of research um, in the UK and in Silicon Valley and in other parts of the world. And basically, um, it showed that... Um, the UK tech scene is actually ethnically more diverse. So I don't, I don't know if your readers would know this, but the um, ethnic minority population of the UK is 13%. Right. Okay. Roughly. But because a lot of Asian communities, and, and, and I'll use the word, it's a horrible acronym, B-A-M-E, Black, Asian and Minority. I hate that. I hate but that. it's quite, well, it's widely used. So, <laughs> so a lot of BAME community live in very concentrated areas. So London actually has a higher proportion of ethnic minorities than other parts of the country. So that we're not kind of spread evenly throughout the country. But um, that meant that the London's tech scene, for example, was very ethnically diverse, but not so much on the gender level. So, right. so that's how the tech list came about. We said, let's actually um, sit down, write down who are the top Asian people working in the UK tech scene. And initially it was London, so it started out with me writing down names on a piece of paper and I got to 25, 26, 27, 30. And then we thought, you know what, we could get to 100 quite readily. So that's how the first list came about. And then off the back of the first list, um, by the way, if you want to see it, it's uh, www.asiansintech.com. I'm going there now. And you can nominate any individual that you know works in the uh, tech sector. So get nominating. I want to be back on that list. Come on, please. <laughs> the, the, the thing that's working against you, Sam, is that it's now Asian Asian. So it's pan right across from uh, Egypt, which is kind of Western Asia, right through to Japan. Oh, come on. You just, you, you just made that near impossible to get on now. Only 100 and you're talking about probably 300 million Indians. Well, no, no. It's still focused on you have to be in the UK tech scene. You have to be living in the UK. Oh, OK. That's so, fine. Okay. So it's kind of narrowed it down. So there's still a chance, Sam. There's still a chance. Yeah, no, there isn't. <laughs> <laughs> really, isn't. I mean, you have to. I, mean, I would say you have to have a talent, and I don't have one, so that's fine. No. Um, so, what was interesting about that is it led to the first diversity tech summit in 2016, 
uh, where we debated some of the barriers that um, uh, ethnic minority individuals and women face in accessing the tech sector. So the Tech Diversity Summit was very broad. Um, and it kind of really highlighted some of the barriers. It had a lot of interesting discussions. And we are seeing um, a removal of some of those barriers, which is great, you know. So now, um, for example, it, it, it identified that, um, um, this is Wira's research, it identified that entrepreneurial teams set up by men were more likely to be funded by VCs than female-led enterprises. And so that's focused everyone's attention on how can we actually invest in female-led enterprises. Um, yeah. So there is a, an organisation called Diversity VC, which is very much looking at the representation of women within VCs, which is venture capitalists. And uh, again, you know, if, if you have women who are actually the investors, you get a slightly different perspective in the types of business that they invest in. Right. But we've also seen things like by changing, the, we, we look at a few categories each year as well and select the top five. And by changing the category each year, we've managed to bring some attention into areas um, of underrepresentation. So last year it was creative industries, for example. Yeah, I'm just having a look now, yeah. Yeah, so, and this year it's going to be health tech. So okay. health tech is very, very big. In the past, we've had ed tech, uh, education technology. Uh, we've had fintech. We've looked at digital influencers. And we certainly look at those in context alongside businesses, which is corporates and tech, you know, conventional tech businesses, uh, B2B, B2C, um, retail tech, e-tech, e-commerce, all of those sorts of things, property tech, um, and tech-enabled businesses. We look at startups. Uh, we look at we specifically look at women working in the tech sector. Um, yeah, the winner last year was a woman. Yeah, so, so each year there is one <coughs> award uh, which is presented by the chairman of Diversity UK, and we are a think tank. We want to recognise diverse individuals and honour their achievements. So he presents one award each year. And last year's winner was a lady called Monica Kalia, and she's um, co-founder and uh, CFO at um, Neighbour. And Neighbour is a very interesting financial technology company allowing people to borrow through payroll lending. Okay. Um, so, you know, absolutely amazing role model. So our chairman's award winners are real role models. So the first year, uh, it was Dinesh Damija, who uh, is the founder of eBookers. Mm -hmm. You probably know him very yeah. well. And that was followed by Shankar Narayan. And he is the um, CEO of Tata Consultancy Services, which is a huge... Massive. Massive, massive uh, technology company, which works for a lot of very big corporations and they underpin a lot of things in the United Kingdom. Uh, and then we, that was followed by Professor Shafi Ahmed, who is actually a surgeon at Bart's. Okay. And the reason he won it is he's using aug augmented reality for when he does operations. Wow. Surg surgical operations. But he uses that as a training tool to train other surgeons. Gosh. Uh, so he was one of the first to use the, you know, HoloLens and do a full surgical operation using HoloLens. Deservedly won that Absolutely. one. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, so each year we just have such an amazing, amazing list of people who are nominated um, and put forward. And it's always such a joy and an honour. And we've... I think made a real significant impact um, by the sheer fact we're bringing attention 
Yes. You know, once a year, really focused attention on a group of individuals and getting, I know it sounds simplistic, but getting the names out there. Yeah. You know. Uh, well, I mean, I, I remember in the early days, I, I say early days, let's say talk a decade ago, you know, the lists used to come out, top wire, top 100. And yeah. it was all white. Yes. All top to bottom practically yes. white. I mean, you get the odd occasional one in there. And yet, look at Google, look at Microsoft, you know, Asian, um, Indian uh, CEOs now. But, but you know, in the UK, it was still, I still think it's quite myopic. Um, yes. You know, the list, I can, you know, if I sat here and said to you, who, who would be number one and who'd be number 10, we'd name them all. We'd yes. name them and they'd all be the same people all the time yes. being named and yes. listed. Um so, so I'm really glad you did that. I'm really delighted it's with the impact it's had because it's it's it spurs on our nominees onto appearing on other lists and and you know and and going. Well, lazy to, journalists then go, oh, what? There's other people I should be talking about. It's just the names. That's yeah. why we've thrown it up there, out there. It's just the names and the number of requests I get for the magazine is incredible. We, we actually produce a full-blown brochure. Oh, I know. I, I gave it to my dad. I was like, <laughs> see, hadn't totally wasted all my life. I got onto the 100. Well, I, I think it's it's nice to be on the list, isn't it? It's oh, it's kind great. Of really kind of an affir- it's a sort of, if it marks an affirmation of what you've been doing up to now, that's succeeded because you've succeeded and that's yeah. kind of what I like about it. And it's just spurs people on to the next challenge because we all face challenges and it kind of gives them a little bit of a warm feeling of being recognised and honoured. And then, yeah, I can take that on. I can do that. And that's really good. But it's had actually, you know, really strong uh, impact in things like um, some of the startups actually getting funding from people, investors they've met at our events. We um, provide a platform for tech showcases. So a lot of business can actually showcase their business. And it's not a, it's not a Dragon's Den style pitch, you know, you don't get fired or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> so it's really in a very affirmative way, showing that these guys can really run a business and they've come up with a great idea and you should fund it or you should partner with it. Uh, some people have found new customers through it. They've gone on to win other competitions uh, because they've got that yep. little springboard They've, uh, yeah, they send me feedback, so I know this is all happening. <laughs> When's the awards ceremony? So the awards ceremony is on the 4th of June uh, in London uh, through our partner KPMG, um, um, whom we are honoured to have um, back on board. And, yeah, you can get nominating. Nominations close on the 31st of March. And um, There you go. It's get- Sam Seffi. <laughs> really simple. Look it up. <laughs> Maybe your dad could put nominate you, Sam. Yeah, no, he, he wouldn't care. He's still he's he's still waiting for me to be an accountant. That's when he'll be happy. Um, okay, but the, when you when you're talking about VCs, then and one one of the things I found when I was raising him uh, money for myself was there were no VCs that were Asian led. Yes, there were Asians within VCs, so yes. Reshmi Shona and mm. or Sonal and, mm. and uh, Avid mm. and all these great. Uh, they all happen to be female, um, as I reeled them off. But they're all within, you know, Seedcam, Axel, yes. you know. Yes. Um, but there was never an Asian grouping. I never found that. There was never... Or maybe I just didn't know about it. May, uh, is there one? So, um, there is... There are one or two unique Asian 
funds. Right. I think that's kind of where yeah. you're getting at. And that's relatively recent in the past couple of years. Because you look at Tata, you look at um, the, what's the um, the guys who run the steel company, Lakshmi. Um, uh, SLO Metal, you're talking about? Yeah, the Mittals. Yeah, yeah. Metals. You know, you've got some of the of the top 10 richest people in the world. Yes. About six are Indian. Yes. Right? Um, and yet, I don't see the Indian community doing as much to help grow Asian yes. startups. Yes. The Jewish community is brilliant at doing that. Yes. You know, you look at um, the work of um, uh, Sol Klein. Yeah. Yes. And I, he, he's great at funding. I don't think he particularly does it to be true. He is now. He's gone, he's gone and done a, an Israeli fund. Yes. Um, but, you know, he didn't initially. But they, they tend to have a close grouping, like uh, Alex Chesterman. Yes. You know, Zoopla was funded out of yes. Sol Klein. So they, they, they help each other a lot. For, but for us, though, it isn't necessarily about encouraging um, BAME. Again, I'll use that horrible acronym. BAME funds or BAME-focused funds. The only reason I hate it is because someone called it BLAME once. Oh, no. Terrible. And LAME was the other <laughs> yeah. one. So I really do well, hate it's, it for those It's kind reasons. of a, yeah, but it's, it's kind of the terminology that's used. I know, I'll just I stick know. with it. But the, for us, it isn't about having those kind of funds, or the, although they are appear, beginning to appear. What it is, is actually funding BAME-led businesses, right? Yeah. So we are trying to overcome those barriers. And in the tech sector, in the funding sector, it's quite easy because they are more excited about the idea and the leadership team and, you know, proof of concept and can they actually make that work. And so it's really for us, it's getting as many funders as want to come to come to these things and just hear these people out because we are assuming that funders, you know, listen to hundreds and hundreds of pitches. I'm not sure that they are doing that. Um, no, I, I, I don't, well, time precludes them being correct. able to do that. So what we are doing by showcasing is just trying to short circuit the that process a little bit so when they come to an event they might hear a three-minute pitch from a company and if it sparks an idea in the back of the head that actually that's a great idea so if i was a startup where would i go to get onto that pitch (sighs) you have to get nominated to be on the list first (laughs) (laughs) i'm not pitching don't worry it wasn't that i was asking i was just generally if anyone was pitching so we No, that's that's the easiest way. Okay. Uh, if you're shortlisted, obviously you then um, uh, you know appear on the list, and we start with the list first because there's so many great companies on the list and has been for the past five years. Um, so that's a good place to start. So kind of the thing for us is to um, democratize funding. So we say, don't look at the color of the skin of the person who's mm-hmm. pitching to you. Look at the business idea. Look at what they've managed to achieve so far. Look at their, you know, their, their growth strategy. Look at their team dynamics. Do all of those things. And we find most funders, um, are, are that's kind of bread and butter to them. So they know what they're doing there. I think, uh, I think Asians getting funding is a lot easier. Um, going back to, you know, what we were talking about, the fact is we are entrepreneurial. We are business related. As a, look, massive sweeping statement there. But, but in the main, mm. that's, the, mm. you know, you know, you know, mum and dad's telling us to get the yes. best education we can get. It's ground into us. Well, we have the, the uh, bank of mum and dad as well. Yes. So a lot of the startup founders are getting their initial seed capital from the bank of mum and dad or uncle or auntie or whatever yeah. you want to call it. But the black community, I think, have not got the same leg up. Uh, and mm. uh, I've been in this industry 
far too long, but about 30 years, mm. uh, close on that anyway. And I very, very rarely come across black entrepreneurs, black CEOs, black business people. Right. Why is that? Uh, I think that's changing very, very rapidly. Good. I have a friend who runs the Tony Alimeli Foundation. I don't know if you know about that. No. It's the largest uh, entrepreneurial foundation in Africa. Okay. And they do an amazing work across Africa. And Tony Alimeli himself Good. is a real icon for that kind of thing. So I think just watch this space very quickly because it is changing quite rapidly. Uh, I think if you're a black individual at the coalface, it's kind of really a bit difficult for you at the moment. But hold out hope because I'm seeing very rapid change in that um, sphere. Uh, and again, it goes back to using some of the uh, things that we've done at Diversity UK to highlight and showcase uh, black individuals for their, you know, for their um, entrepreneurial activity. That's really um, what's happening. Good. I mean, again, we're fast running out of time. Wow. I, I, we could talk because I mean, yes. I want to talk about what's going on in India. I mean, you know, and and you know, clip. Uh, Clipkart and, and yes. all the great stuff that's yes, going on. India is amazing. And, yeah. and, and it, it, we only get it, you know, small snippets of what's happening out there. Um, I think we haven't got time to talk about India because India itself is an enormous market and they are very much focused on stuff they're doing in their own market. Yeah. And it is, they've got a billion potential customers. I mean, you know, I think you and I should go to India. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think I should. I mean, I think, I think, I think, going back to what you said earlier, you know, about Africa leapfrog, uh, yes. you know, technology. I think India's going to leapfrog. Um, yeah. We're not going to have broadband and fibre. We're going to go straight to five G. We're yes. going to go and leapfrog it that way. And it's Correct. it's a mobile led world out there, and 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 it, it's it's a totally culturally different way of communicating. And you know, India is such a diverse country anyway in terms of languages and whatever. Mm. So I think it's going to be pretty scary in the next 10 15 years what comes out of there mm. anyway we can't talk about that because we are at the end of the show oh. lopa thank you it so much for coming in such a pleasure such a pleasure so if people want to get involved with you find out what you're doing where's the best place to find you www.diversityuk or one word .org brilliant well uh all i have to say is thank you Sam, that show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk, or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week. Same time, same place.